I'd like to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. In just a moment, we're going to take our attention down to verse 43 as we continue our discussion from the Sermon on the Mount. You may have noticed already that all that we have had to discuss thus far has had to do with things that we must do. Each of the titles of our sermons already have had something to do with the word must. And today is no different. Today we discuss the idea of an infection. We must administer. You know, God and Christ himself both hold us to a higher standard of living than that which is typically accepted by men. God expects his children, Christians, to do more and to do better than is often accepted by one another. You and I may not hold one another to such a high standard. The world may not hold the Christian to such a high standard, but God holds his children to the highest standard, and that's his. God is in control of what's right and what's wrong, He's in control of what is good and what's evil, and in this instance, what is acceptable and not acceptable. We can be certain of that because even in the most recent portions of this text, I mean in Matthew chapter 5, we have seen already five instances where Christ holds us to that higher standard. You go back and look with me just to begin with in verse 21. Jesus said to us, you have heard that it was said. You drop down to verse 27. The Bible said you have heard that it was said. You go down to verse 31. Jesus said it hath been said. You go down to verse 33. It says again you have heard that it hath been said. And also in verse 38 we notice, he says, ye have heard that it hath been said. Now in behind each of those, however, Jesus uses an English word, the word but, to contrast what has been said already by men. In each of those instances, Jesus says in the very next verse, but I say unto you, therefore what do we learn? Jesus holds us to a higher standard of living. You see, the things that Jesus would say unto us are higher than that which is accepted, as we've said already, and they are things that we must do. I think we make a terrible mistake. I know the world does. When they read the Bible and they see the words of Jesus, oftentimes in some uh, printings of that, at least the translations have them in red, and they read that and they think of those things as words of the Lord, but they also say, well, maybe that's just a may or a might. Friend, it's always a must. Or maybe they turn and they say, well, maybe that's a matter of option or a matter of opinion. That's not correct. It's always a matter of obligation. Or perhaps they say, well, Jesus is involved in the midst of a great discussion. Friends, it's not so much a discussion as it is a direction. Or maybe they say, well, Jesus is leading us to a a portion of insight and of understanding. It's never that. It has to do with instruction and the undeniable things that we must do. And so don't forget today, when we discuss this passage at hand, 
We're talking about things that we must do, in particular here, something that we must do concerning love. Now read the text when beginning verse 43. Jesus stating here, the Bible records it, says, And ye have heard that it hath been said, that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That, verse 45, you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if we love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Verse 48 concludes and says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Friends, there is much to learn from this text. I don't know if we were to speak from now to the end of time, if we would be able to exhaust it, but we're going to make some attempts to understand it. The first thing I want you to notice with me about this text is what we're going to call, for understanding and memory's sake at least, the principle. What I mean by that is what is the principle? What is the practical application? What is the most simplistic way of taking view of what Jesus has said here? Because oftentimes we make things more difficult, more confusing than they ought to be. But the principle here is clear. You notice, begin with, with me, at least in verse 43, Jesus gives us what we're going to call a statement of men. Because it was men, not God, who said, Ye have heard that it hath been said. Jesus quoting them now. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, that's typically accepted by men. It's typically practiced. It's typically understood. And sadly, it's even the case in the Lord's church by Christians. Oftentimes, it's typically acted out and applied in our everyday lives. To turn and say, well, if you're my neighbor, if you're a loved one, if you're a family member, if you're a friend, then that's the type of person I can love. It's easy to love those type of people. But to turn on the other side and say, however, if you are not any of the aforementioned, but yet you are an enemy, then I have the right to hate you. The idea there is basically, if you love me, I'll love you. If you hate me, I'll hate you. It's the idea of reciprocating action, and it's never to be applied that way. You see, in all of these statements, he tells us what men say, what men believe, what men accept, and what men do, but then he's going to contrast that with what he would have his children to do. One of those texts, Stephen spoke of men who often said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, someone might argue and say, well, that was a part of the old law. Uh, that was a part of the law of Moses. And remember, preacher, at this time when Jesus is physically speaking these words, he and the whole of the crowd was still living under that old law. I don't deny that at all. But the problem there was simple. 
They took an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was a judicial law supposed to be used inside of a courtroom before a judge and jury as we would see it today. They took that and tried to bring it into everyday life and tried to live it out and practice it themselves physically without ever consulting with a judge and jury. It was literally the case. If you were to be out in the field and maybe some sort of a, a ruckus would erupt, your tooth gets knocked out, you had the right. Grab that man up by the throat and knock his tooth out. So they thought. And that was never God's intention. And that's what's happening here in our text now. It's acceptable by men to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But God said it's not acceptable to him. We know that because under this heading of the principle, not only do you have the statement of men, you have in the next verse the statement of the master. Notice with me again verse 44. Jesus said, But I say unto you to love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Now we're going to notice each of those phrases. You see, Jesus places upon us a requirement. In the first part of this requirement, the statement of the Master brings upon us a requirement, and the first part of it is love. Love who? Well, again, men accept that we ought to love our friends. We accept that we ought to love our neighbors. We accept that we ought to love our families and such. But they don't necessarily accept this. Jesus says love your enemies. You say, preacher, that's, that's hard to do. I'm not even sure if that's possible. Why, I have enemies out there who are out to get me. They just hate me to the core. They despise me. Well, that's okay. That might be proving to you that you're a Christian, that you're a child of God's. Jesus told his disciples on one occasion, you shall be hated, watch it, for my name's sake. Or maybe you have enemies, and you probably do, because you're a child of God, especially if you're living a faithful life as a child of God's. But Jesus said, love those people. Love those people. Now, where we mess up sometimes is we think about it in the wrong way. They accepted the fact that they ought to love certain people, but when that person became evil, or when that person became an enemy, or when that person became a sinner, which oftentimes is all wrapped up in one, they said, we don't have to love them. That's never what God taught. God hates evil. Romans 12 and verse 9, he encourages us to hate evil, but he does not encourage us to hate the evil person. God hates sin, no doubt about that. But God does not encourage us to hate the sinner, only to hate the sin. They were misapplying. They were saying in their minds and sometimes even with their physical bodies, I hate you because you hate me. And oftentimes, maybe as I might, using the excuse, but they're evil, but they're a sinner, God. Jesus said, love your enemies. How can we do that? Well, if you were to go and spend any time, and if you chose to do this, you could study the Greek language. And you would be able to find out fairly easily that there are four words in the Greek language that are often translated into the English as our English word, love. Now, three of these four words are found in the New Testament. 
The fourth one, eros, which has to do with erotic or sexual type of love, is never used in the New Testament. But the other three are all found. The other three have to do with either brotherly or family type of love, or they have to do with just a a passionate type of love or an emotional type of love. They're found in the New Testament. But the one found most often, and the Greek word used here is a Greek word agapo, which has to do with respect. In the very first sense, it has to do with respect. Now you think about that. What God asks us to do, therefore, is to respect our enemies. That's not all He asks us to do. But He begins by saying, respect your enemies. Can you do that? Well, that may be difficult. It depends on what caused them to be an enemy as to how easy or how simple that may be. But it doesn't change the fact it is necessary. It has to be done. But there's more to this word than that. The more practical application of the word is not that of just respect. It has the idea of unconditional love. Now this is where we go wrong so many times in our relationships and especially in our marriages. Because you and I can be guilty of turning to our spouse saying, tell you what, I will love you if you do this and that. Well, that's not unconditional love. That is conditional love. There are conditions that are laid out. And if those conditions are met, then I'll love you. That's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to love without condition. Why? Because he loves us without condition. The Bible tells us that while we were watching yet sinners, meaning while we were still in the midst, in the practice of sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now is that conditional or unconditional? He died for all men. He died for every man. Is that to say all men will be saved? No. You have to do your part. You have to obey him, certainly. But in essence, he died for all men without condition. That's taught in John 3, 16, the most familiar verse in the Bible. For God so loved, what does that mean? So greatly loved, mightily loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, what do you mean whosoever? Do you mean the drunkard? Yes. Do you mean the adulterer? Yes. Do you mean the rapist? Do you mean the murderer? Do you mean this? Do you mean that? Yes, God sent his son to die for everyone because his love is unconditional. Now how can we serve God who loves us unconditionally and then turn and place conditions on our love? You know, humans sometimes are guilty of even looking toward God and saying, God, I I love you. I'll always love you. And then when trials and dangers and difficulties come in our life, distressing situations come in, we look to God and say, God, I I thought we had a deal here. I thought me and you were like that. I thought we had something going. And God, you turn your back on me now. You've allowed this problem to enter into my life, and therefore I don't love you anymore. That's conditional love. It's not accepted by God. Not toward our spouses, not toward him, and not toward any of the world. 
Now, if you have unconditional love for your enemy, what that says is, whether you've done me right or done me wrong, I love you anyway. Your emotions may not say the same thing, but the love God requires upon us in agapo love is not emotion. But not only does he lay upon us and require of us that we love, he goes on to say that you bless. Notice the next phrase there. He says, and bless them that curse you. Now what does that mean? Well, typically when we think of someone who may curse us, we think of someone who uses four-letter words, vulgarities. We think about somebody who points their finger in our face and says, you blankety-blank this or that. Well, there's, there's a sense in which that occurs. Oftentimes our enemies are enemies of the world. They're worldly people. They're not in any way religious or connected with God. And so they may curse us. Cuss words, we call them. But that's not really what he talks about here. No, the word curse here means to think evil of. It has the idea of someone who looks at you and says, I don't want anything good to come your way. I don't want you to have any success in life. I want your life to be terrible, and I want you to have evil upon you. That's what he's talking about. But what does he require of us? He requires of us, the one who would curse us, we therefore bless. What does it mean to bless? We have a little discussion around the supper table sometimes, Jennifer and I picking back and forth, I guess, at one another. And I'll make a statement. I'll say, let's go ahead and say the blessing. Jennifer will turn back. she say, no, let's say the prayer. Because she's often reminded me, we cannot bless God, and we do not have the right to bless our own food. Only God can do that. And then I, in turn, say, well, when I say that we're going to bless the food, I'm saying that we're going to give thanks for the food that God has blessed us with. And so it's kind of circular reasoning, and I suppose uh, grammatically she's more correct than I. But what is a blessing? The word bless here is the word that we get our English word eulogy or to eulogize. We understand what that is. If you have been unfortunate enough in your life to have to attend a funeral, And perhaps you have not only attended a funeral, maybe you've been asked to speak at a funeral. Someone says, I want you to get up and say a few words and to eulogize or to give a eulogy over this body that's in our presence. You know what this is. To eulogize someone is to speak well of them, to tell the good things about a person. And sometimes you have to grasp at straws to do that. But you do it anyway. Why? Because it's comforting to the family. Jesus says, bless them. Now, can you do that? Friends, if you want to bad enough, you can look back in someone's life, anyone's life, and you can find one thing to say about them that is good. And if you can't do that, If you've looked to the nth degree and to the ends of the earth and you can't find that, take the advice of your mother, fulfill this verse. What did your mother say? Well, my mom always said, and I'm sure yours did, if you can't say anything good, what? Don't say anything at all. That's a blessing. It's a real blessing sometimes to just shut your mouth and turn and walk away. They're cursing you. They're thinking evil of you. And you just look them in the eye for a minute and turn around and walk off. Why, it's a blessing. You just bless them by not retaliating. And you fulfilled what God would have for you to do. 
But not only does he require of us, this master, does he require of us that we love. He requires of us that we bless. Notice the next one here. He requires of us that we do good. You keep reading there in the same verse. He said, but I say unto you to love your enemies, to bless them that curse you. Watch it. To do good to them that hate you. What? Do good to them that hate you. Now, how in the world can we do that? It may be hard. It may be difficult. It may take some time, but it must be done. How can I do good? Well, does that imply that if they hate me, if they despise me, if they think evil of me, if they curse me, whatever, that I in turn need to go home, cook them a meal, and take it to them and say, oh, well, I'm a do-gooder, there's some good to do? Not necessarily. The two words here in the English bring forth from the Greek language from one word, which literally means to be fair or to be honest. Someone says, well, it's fair. It's fair if they're evil. It's fair that we be evil toward them. It's honest that if they're evil toward me, that I be evil toward them. They curse me, I curse them. And so, preacher, what are we even talking about? You've got to get out of the minds of men and get into the mind of God here. Now, this is a higher standard. It may be fair and honest in the minds of men, but we're not consulting men in what we do as his children, God's children. We're consulting with God. God said to be fair and to be honest. Now, what is fair treatment in the sight of God? Well, you could go back to what we mentioned. It was fair to God. It seemed fair to God that when we were sinners, Christ would die. In this, you do the best that God can allow you to do, which is the best. Be fair and be honest. But not only that, you go down to the last instruction here. He requires of us, not only that we love, that we bless, do good, he says pray. The last part of the verse, reading the whole of it, however, verse 44, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, watch it, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray. Now, how do we do that? Someone who has persecuted you, someone who has put you sometimes even in harm's way or physically harmed you, at least emotionally harmed you, how can you pray for them? Well, this may be the easiest thing to do if you get your mind right. Because this is where God invites you to pray on their behalf. What can you pray? Well, you might pray something like this. Dear God, please allow so-and-so, the name of your enemy, please allow them to have a soft and kinder heart. That'll work, won't it? Dear God, name of your enemy, please allow them to be more caring and more concerned about my feelings. That'll work. Or better yet, dear God, please allow the name of this enemy, please allow them to see the light that is shown about by your precious Son and have them to obey Him so that they can be God-like and Christ-like so that they can be brother and or sister with me in Christ. Now there's something to pray. And I'll tell you about this word pray. The word he chooses here has to do with making a petition or a supplication. 
What does that mean? Petition means to beg, literally. To ask God. You ask God to assist them. And what do you ask Him for? Well, the word supplication that is found in this word implies that they are supplied with something. Maybe it's supplied with a new heart. Maybe it's to be supplied with a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new character, a new attitude. I don't know what it would be, but He says pray. So I tell you what I'll pray for. I'll pray they'll be hit by a freight train. You won't pray that way and be in the mind of God. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. When we think about this principle, and we think about the statement of men and put it up against the statement of the Master, we know from the Master there is a requirement. But I'll tell you something else about it. There is a result. Verse 45 gives us the result. If this is done, and it ought to be, it should be, but he says that ye, verse 45, may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Look at that phrase there. He said that ye may be the children of your Father. I do not know how many times I have entered into a church building anywhere, I suppose, in the, in the portions of the country that I've been when I have entered in, and before long, maybe it's because I've been seen, maybe it's because I've been heard, someone will approach me eventually, and they'll look me in the eye, maybe point in my face, and they'll say, you are a child of John Merle. Or sometimes they'll confuse that with his twin brother who's passed away, Don Merle. They'll say, you must be Don Merle's son. I even had one brother in Demopolis, Alabama. I was attending a gospel meeting over there, and I stood up to say the closing prayer. We just stood up in the pew where I was, I think, and a guy who was behind me, I suppose who had not seen my face yet, heard my voice, and as soon as the prayer was laid, he beelined it to me, and he said, I tell you what, you must be John or Don Merle's son. Why is that? Because I have within me, whether it be physically or whatever, I have some of the characteristics of my father and or uncle. Maybe some good, maybe some not so good, but they're there. They're recognizable. And that's the case with oftentimes with the offspring of men and women. Well, it ought to be the case with God. It ought to be the case that when we practice these things, men can put two and two together, can make a nice little mathematical equation out of it and say, I don't know who you are by name, but I'll tell you what, your father is God of heaven. They ought to be able to do that. And if they can't do that, I've got to think and I've got to change. Now this is the result. But I want to give you something else. Not only the requirement is found, the result is found, the reason is found. Because I'll tell you something true and honest about me. Jim Merle lives his life oftentimes, sometimes mistakenly, and says, why? Why do this, God? What's in it for me? What will be the benefit for me or anyone for that matter if I do this? Well, I thank God. I thank Christ himself as he spoke these words that he gave us the specific, the true, complete reason for this. Notice it beginning in verse 46. Here's why you do it. 
He said, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Verse 47, For if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Now that may not seem to be much of a reason for us, but when you put this thing where it belongs, which is in first century times, which is in the very presence of Jesus up on this mount overlooking multitudes, predominantly multitudes of Jews, if you put this where it ought to be, they understood that. And that was reason enough to change. Why? Well, you see the word publican there used in the King James translation twice? They despise the publican. A publican was basically a tax collector. Now, I don't know of any of us who, if we were to physically be sitting in our home, maybe looking out the window, in a black car with a tag or a sticker on the side saying, Internal Revenue Service Auditor, Tax Collector, were to pull up to our door, that we would all holler for the children and say, Come, come look. We have a visitor. We have a, a, a welcome guest. We wouldn't do that. But I tell you, we'd be more likely to welcome that auditor or tax collector in our home than the Jew would have been in that day in that time. Because here's what had taken place. The Roman government had taken the Jews into basically captivity or bondage. They put them under their government whether they wanted to be there or not. They had allowed them to have a sub-government, which could not do very much. But they had a sub-government, but ultimately they answered to the Romans. Now, why had the Romans done that? Well, I'm sure there were several reasons, but one of the major things they did through having them in subjection to them was they taxed them, and they taxed them greatly. And then the Romans in turn hired Jews from their own people they hired them to be tax collectors publicans is the words here and they said you go out and collect the taxes now here's what the average publican would do they would go to their neighbor's door fellow Jew they would knock on the door tap 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 and after doing that when the door was open they would say I'm here to collect the taxes on behalf of the Roman government and then they would in turn say, the sum of your tax is $2. Now what they weren't willing to tell them, perhaps, and this is just for example, what they weren't willing to tell them is that written on the clipboard that they were holding, that they weren't allowing the citizen to see, was only $1. You say, why ask for two? That's the way they made their living. The Roman government gave them free reign. The Roman government taxed them highly themselves. But they said any amount that you can get over and above what we have already taxed that person, it's yours to keep. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? The wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. He was a tax collector. He was a publican. And he reported to Jesus after he had repented and began to follow Jesus that he would return fourfold. How did he do that? He had ripped a lot of people off. But yet, Jesus said, if you're not willing, if you're not willing to allow yourself to live to a higher standard than that which men would accept, if you're not willing to love, to bless, to do good, and to pray for your enemies, you're no better than a publican. Again, that may mean one thing to us, but to the Jew on that day, I mentioned before, there are several times in this text where it seems as Jesus spoke, maybe some of the Jews there in the multitude, the crowds, 
had began to drift off. Their attention had gone in one direction or another. They're looking off, watching a bird in a tree or such. Or maybe they begin to slumber. Or maybe they've actually fallen asleep. On certain places, you can assume that when Jesus said what he would say, their heads would snap. Their eyes would open and they would wake up. Maybe they would punch their buddy next to him and say, what did he just say? And their buddy who would rightly translate it would say, he just said, if you won't do what he says, you're no better than one of those scum of the earth publicans. And they would snap to it when they heard that. For them, that was enough reason. If you're going to put me in the category with a publican, a worthless piece of society, I'm going to do different. That's the reason. But he said about these people that if they themselves are choosing to only love the neighbor and to hate the enemy, they're no better than a publican. But he went on there. We read it in verse 47. He said, if you salute your brethren only. Now, brethren to us means fellow Christians. Well, it means that now, and it meant it then to an extent, but you see the church of Christ had not formally been established, so there really weren't any brethren in that sense, but there were brethren of blood kinship. And so what Jesus is more so saying perhaps here then is if you salute or if you invite or if you enjoy the company of your family and your family only, and you won't include the rest of the world in this, you're no better than a publican. What does that mean for us? Friends, if we spend all of our time with our families and all of our time with our brethren, and now I mean by that our church-going folk, Christians, and that's all that we do, we're no better than the rest of the world. We've excommunicated ourselves from the world and we cannot save them that way. We have to be separate from the world. We have to come out from among them. We cannot love the world, neither things that are in the world. Those are all statements made by God through the mouths of men. But Paul told us on one occasion, if we, paraphrasing it, if we don't want to be a part of this world, I mean, we don't want to have to deal with fornicators and adulterers and evil of this world, we must needs go out of this world. What he says there in a nutshell is, if you don't like the way this world is, you're just going to have to die because otherwise you're going to be in it. You'll have to be a part of it, but you'll have to be in it. The statement of the Master gave us a requirement, a result, and a reason. But not only is there a principle involved, we'll have to move very quickly. There's likewise a practice. If we were to ask the question of God, God, I understand what you're saying, but how can I do this? How can I practice this in my life? I'll assure you, everything God commands of us, He will in some terms, in some place, maybe not in the immediate context for time's sake, or for topic's sake. But he in some other passage will explain to us how to practically live out what he's already commanded upon us. And he'll do it here. For instance, when you think about the practice, I want you to know there is a parable. Now, we don't have time this morning to read the parable. You'll be familiar with it. If you want to turn to it, you can see it for a while anyway. In Luke chapter 10, beginning back up in about verse 29, you find the parable that we know today is the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Now what had happened here is a typical or a certain lawyer would come to Jesus and question Jesus and say, who is my neighbor? You see, the practice of the day, as we've seen in our text already, was to love the neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, maybe there's a man here who's in the earshot of Jesus, and he inserts in that Jesus, first of all, I'm not worried about who my enemy is. I can't understand who my neighbor is. Doesn't mean the fellow in front and behind and on either side of me. That's the way we often think. Is that what Jesus speaks of? Well, in the parable here, Jesus speaks of a man who is beaten. He's robbed. Thieves have taken him, left him for dead. And typically, you see in the text there, if you just read it, you find a priest, for instance, a God-fearing man of the day, a religious person, the priest who walks down the road going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he sees the man in the way, but he doesn't do a thing in the world about it. He just keeps going, passed by on the other side. Then you have another man, a Levite sort of an assistant to the priest, but a godly man, a God-fearing man, you would suppose. He's supposed to be religious. And here he goes. He walks down the same road, and he sees the same man, and he's much more curious as to what had happened. And maybe he even takes time to kneel down and look at him and say, Man, you look rough. You've, you've been beaten. You, you might die. But he gets up and walks off and doesn't do a thing in the world to help. Then there's a third man who comes by, a Samaritan. Now you think the Jews hated the publican. You ought to study what they thought of the Samaritans. They despised the Samaritan. The Samaritan in general, and this is a whole nation of people, they were hated at least the same if not more than the publican. But it was a Samaritan that came down the road. He looked over here and he saw the man who was injured. He went and took him up, put him on his own beast, carried him to an inn, which by the way, I want you to recognize, he carried him to a Jewish inn most likely in that area. That's what it would have been. And he, a Samaritan now, had the guts to walk into that inn and give this man over ask that he be cared for and to pay what is due and even to promise that when he came back through town if there was anything else owed, he would pay that. Now, I want to raise a question about this to begin with and ask you, shouldn't the innkeeper have turned to the Samaritan and say, you know what, you want to do good and I want to do good, so let's, let's see what we can do here. First of all, I'm going to give you the room in my inn for free. You won't owe me anything. He could have, but he didn't. He charged the Samaritan. Makes you wonder about his own attitude, but that's not really discussed in the text. What am I getting to, though? Later on, as Jesus completes this parable, this illustration of things, the man then stands back. Jesus asks him again, who is your neighbor? And he has to admit the neighbor to this injured man was the one who cared for him, basically who loved him. What am I saying? If you want to be a neighbor to the world, you love them. You love them. You be there for them. Now that's a parable that teaches us to love. He teaches us that love is shown in action. But not only is there a parable, there are particulars. Again, we don't have time to read it, but in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7, the love chapter of the Bible, as we call it sometimes, there in that text, Paul gives the Corinthians and us some particulars about love. He tells us what love will do, how love is practiced, and how it will act. We can learn much from that. 
Not only do we have within this the principle, and that is the principle and statements of men, we have the statements of the Master, which bring us a requirement, a result, and a reason. Not only do we have the practice and it's seen in the parable and in the particulars of text that Paul would write. Friends, I want you to know we have the power to. The very last verse in this text, verse 48, says, Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father. Now, notice there he gives them credit for being the children of God when he says your Father. Perhaps not all there that day were thinking that way. They weren't necessarily allowing God to be their Father. But he gives them that credit. He says, As your Father, watch it, which is in heaven is perfect. Now what is this? Is God sinlessly perfect? Yes. Can man be sinlessly perfect, meaning he will not sin? No, no one's done that but Christ, and no one will, save someone who dies before they're held accountable. Then in that sense, they would be sinlessly perfect. But other than those, no man's perfect. But the word perfect here, as it often implies in the New Testament, implies completeness, fullness, allness is what's talked about here. And what does he speak? Well, if you go back and you just use the context, and that's the best way to use the Bible is to use the context, you're going to find out he's talking about a man who would be perfect or complete in passion, love. Complete love, a love for God, a love for neighbors, a love for enemies, a love for fellow men. He wants us to be that way. What does that mean? If we are perfect like our Father, as our Father, we are God-like. Christians talk about wanting to be godly. They have to be God-like to be godly. But not only should we be perfect in passion, we have to be perfect in pity. Because in what we saw a moment ago in the parable, just quickly as we went through it, you saw the Samaritan was the one who really kind of takes hold of the essence of God when he shows pity on this man. He has a passion or a love for him, but likewise he has a pity or a mercy. Now oftentimes we look to God and we say, God, give me justice. You don't want justice from God. Justice from God as a sinner is death. You want mercy. God, be pitiful. Look down on me and know that I am in a pitiful state. Lesser than you. Give me pity. And Christ wants his children, his followers, to be perfect in pity. How great it is. When we think about this affection that we must administer, when we can know there is a principle to be applied, there is a practice to be acted out, but there is a power to be obtained. And that power comes from God. You see, all that he required of us and that we love, we bless, we do good, we pray for our enemies, none of that is possible in self, but it's all possible in Christ. We can do it in him. Philippians 4.13, a familiar passage tells us, I can do all things 
through Christ, which strengthens me. You can do it, and so can I. Do you have the affection we must administer? Do you love your neighbors as well as love your enemy? Do you practice this perfect passion, this perfect pity upon fellow men? I'll tell you, if you're not a child of God, you can. You may try, and you may, according to the standard of men, what's accepted by men, you may measure up. But according to God, you will not, because you can't do it without Him. It's not possible. But you can do it with Him. You're here this morning, you're not a child of God. I would encourage you, as God would have for you to do, to hear the gospel. To not only to hear it, as you might be even doing today, within the earshot, but to believe it to rely upon it, to have faith in it, then therefore being willing to repent. If there are sins in your life, and there are, if you're not a child of His, their sins need to be repented of, meaning they need to be turned from. You've got to turn toward God. To confess the name of Christ in such a statement as the eunuch would, that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but not only that, Jesus would say, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, that that confession would be that which is done over and over again before men with the mouth, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And to be baptized, as Peter would tell the crowd that day, for the remission of sins. And Jesus would command it upon us, Mark 16, 16. Peter would reveal unto us later, if we had missed the point, we should not have, that baptism doth now also save us. And being willing to live faithful unto God. You see, maybe you're here this morning, you are a child of God's, and, and you, through the power of God, you can practice these things, but maybe you just simply have not. You look and you measure the way that men would. And you say, well, if you're my neighbor, surely I love you. But if you're my enemy, I cannot. I will not. You must change. You must come home to God today through prayer, through repenting of that, which is sin. For him that knoweth to do good, this is good here. We're talking about good. For him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, for him it is sin. You come home today through prayer and repentance. You come back to God. Won't you do it this morning while together we stand and as we sing?